Hello, my name is Chandler O'Leary. And my name is Johnny Hatch. Welcome to Bedside Business, a student-run podcast where we talk with physicians about how they use business principles to improve their lives and the lives of their patients. We believe that business is a tool physicians can use to help their patients fight against burnout and make the world a better place. We aim to explore all these topics and more. Today, we talk with Dr. Chris Myers. We first heard about him from an article he published urging medical schools to incorporate business curriculum into their medical education. In this episode, we talk about why he feels medical schools need business curriculum, what that curriculum should include, how life flight crews learn from one another, and how continuous learning can be a tool to prevent burnout. We sure learned a lot from this episode, and we hope you will too. Enjoy. Dr. Myers, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here with us. Glad to be here. Yeah, so we found out about you. We saw an article published talking about why medical students should have business curriculum within their medical school curriculum. Can you explain a little bit why you believe in that and why you push to have business curriculum within a medical student's career? Yeah, so I think a good place to start is what we mean by sort of business school curriculum, right? And so a lot of people immediately equate that to finances and billing and budgets and things like that. But, you know, what we teach our MBA students, there's certainly a portion of it related to finance and accounting and and budgeting and things like that. But a lot of the material that we're covering in an MBA program is about how to work through challenging situations operationally, How do we get our our systems and processes in order? And then a large chunk of it is at the interpersonal level. How do we motivate others? How do we organize a team? If you're starting an organization, how do you think about the structure of different roles and how they're going to interact? And all of those pieces, not just the finance, but perhaps particularly the considerations around operational flow and around organizational dynamics and how we manage others are hugely relevant in the world of medicine. In fact, it's it's really always really interesting to me that every graduate of medical school will lead a team. That's not a guarantee for even for our MBA students. Some will go on and just have a, a whole career as individual contributors where they have deep expertise in a particular area. But, you know, for residency, you show up on day one and it's great. You're covering overnight tonight. You know, here's a census of 20 patients. Here's, you know, the the pool of nurses, attendings, NPs, you know, a whole variety of different roles, find a way to fit in and and be a good leader in this setting. And so, you know, it's very rare that you find a profession like that where everyone for sure will step into some kind of formal or informal leadership capacity. And yet those are the things that are left almost completely unaddressed in most medical school curricula. Right? And so when we look at the proportion of time spent on different topics, the joke I like to give is you would think that the Krebs cycle is killing people left and right, given how much time we spend on it in medical school. Yet when we look at root cause analyses, we know it's things like communication, right? coordination, operational flow, shortages. All those things have way bigger impacts on the quality of care that we're able to deliver. And yet those are left to be things that we kind of learn, you know, quote unquote, on the job 
as we figure it out. And we're not always given the best role models or the best examples or even just the time to kind of learn it on the job. So it leaves everybody in a big bind. That makes a lot of sense. And it's crazy because a lot of these things, like the management issues and things like that, they can have hugely negative impacts on patient outcomes. And a lot of times it seems like it's very removed. You know, we get a little bit of training on that stuff and it's really removed sometimes from like the fact that this stuff will go on to affect your patients. Even just if you're not operating as a team at maximum efficiency, there's limited resources that can go on to affect patient outcomes too. Absolutely. So if I went to a department chair and said, I have a new piece of clinical technology or a new drug that's been developed and it will improve the performance of your, I don't know, let's say a PICU team, right? By 15 to 20%, I'd have a line out the door. Right. You know, I'd have every pick you chair in the country come in to talk to me about this drug. Yet when I go in and share results that in a randomized controlled trial of what's called in the literature incivility. Right. So think about it as just rude behavior. We see 15 to 20 percent objective decreases in performance when teams are exposed to incivil or rude behavior. Nobody's lining up out the door for civility training or to to give me a million dollars to come in and develop an organizational or operational intervention to to deal with civility, and certainly not in the same numbers that are that would show up. You know, if I slapped Striker on the side of it and said it's this new piece of equipment that's going to have a similar kind of performance effect. So we know to focus on the clinical things or the the kind of tangible tools and techniques, but sometimes we leave these other elements that have just as much, if not more, impact on patient care, as you say. We leave them off to the side and don't give them the same kind of attention. So our training in interprofessionalism, right? It's an interprofessionalism course, and we get together with students from the nursing school, the School of Public Health. We have dietitians in training come and we all gather together and we have interprofessionalism training. Is that different from the training that you do at John Hopkins University in their medical school curriculum? Or how, how is the management training that you propose different from this interprofessional training that's pretty standard across medical schools in the U.S.? Yeah, so, so there's kind of two pieces to this. One is these interprofessional skills are certainly an important part of it. And so it's been really encouraging to see more movement in that direction and trying to adapt the training processes to match the practice environment, right? You know, we train nurses in nursing school, physicians in medical school, you know, PTs in PT school, and yet then we put them all together when they're actually executing their tasks in the real world. And so bringing people together earlier in the process, learning to understand one another's backgrounds, expertise, you know, ability to contribute to the team, that's certainly a huge step forward. Um, it isn't everything. I think there's still a lot of room to, to grow and to, to understand some of these other facets of management. So that gets us to some of the, that role coordination, um, but some of these other considerations around operations, resource use, things like that, I think could still benefit from a good bit of training. And the second piece is to to clarify that, you know, even here at Hopkins, we still haven't 
mastered this, right? We still don't have this kind of management training in our required medical school curricula. So, you know, the article you referred to earlier was our call for doing that both here at Hopkins and elsewhere. We've been expanding the, the training opportunities that we create for practicing physicians, uh, as well as for medical students through kind of the, the normal pathways of a dual degree MD, MBA or something like that. But it's still lacking, you know, even here. Yeah, I had a question about like just the mechanics of how do you teach these business and interpersonal concepts. When you think about something like the Krebs cycle, like we talked about earlier, Mm -hmm. it's really obvious how to test if someone knows that or not. How do you go about testing these sort of interpersonal skills and business skills? Like just mechanically, how does that work? Yeah, the, the good news is that we've been doing it in business schools for hundreds of years, right? You know, as long as we've been offering business curricula, we've had exams and we've had simulations and cases. And, you know, it looks quite similar to many of the things that, that you would expect in medical school. And in fact, there's really nice opportunities to integrate some of these things. So, you know, you all will often go through standardized patient interactions, right? to the extent that those are conducted in a team setting, they can be evaluated and graded on interpersonal or the interprofessional skills that you mentioned earlier as well. Again, we choose to focus on the clinical elements of it. Did you get the right diagnosis? There might be a minor section allocated to, you know, were you nice to the patient? Did you have good rapport and bedside manner? But we don't dig deep necessarily into some of the operational or management issues that we could in the very same setting. You could imagine having sort of a parallel curriculum where we look at the extent to which we are actually executing good and effective teamwork. And so I think there are a lot of sort of low-hanging fruit opportunities to incorporate assessments of these kinds of things throughout not only medical school, but through residency and, and CME as well to see, you know, how individuals are doing in these different domains. The reason I ask that is I there's this quote in um in the article published by John Hopkins Press, which we'll put in the show notes, but I thought it was hilarious. I want to read it. And I'm not clear who actually said this. It was quoted in the article, but it didn't really attribute anyone to it. But it says, many medical professionals have received some management or leadership training, but it has tended to come through a widely varied and non-systematic approach that has had little impact on broader practices and behaviors. And that's why I really ask about the mechanics of teaching this stuff because I'm not talking specifically about our school, but people I know at other medical schools have talked about, it's kind of a joke about like their, you know, Oh, our business education today, like, let's see how, you know, what creative ways we can find to waste two hours of our time or whatever. And I'm just wondering what is the mechanism behind like all the variability and quality for these, you know, management training things that are out there in different medical schools do you have any? Yeah. So there have been a couple really good meta-analyses and, and reviews of the literature on this. And uh, that's where that, that comment came from, is we have evidence that the, the impacts of them are widely varying because um, very often what we do is, you know, rally the, the senior leaders of a hospital, get them together to come and present on effective leadership and management of a hospital. Um, you know, and and there's this adage that, simply having led a team does not make one an expert on team leadership in the same way that, 
you know, possessing kidneys doesn't make one a nephrologist, right? That, you know, there's, there's a level of expertise and skill building that comes in um, from the systematic study of these things. And so what we often see in these programs, unfortunately, is that they are very scattered. So let's say a department chair decides that she wants to roll this out for her department. It won't roll out to the whole hospital. It'll roll out to usually the attendings in her department. She may not know necessarily where the best source of information is. You look around and, you know, often you might see departments bring in an external speaker or a consultant from industry who presents one particular way of doing things. Those attendings then go back into their interprofessional care environment. They're the only people who know these new ideas or new ways of thinking or even just talking about the dynamics that they use. And so it sort of falls off because you don't want to be the evangelist who has to come and then teach everybody else in the unit how these things are going to work. And so without that systematic approach, we see it kind of in fits and starts, right? You know, it, it mm-hmm. grows in a little area and then sort of dies out a little bit. The second thing is when you rely on those external consultants, sometimes you get a wide range of different, let's say, levels of quality of the the approach that's brought in, right? And there's sometimes a risk of favoring simplicity or, or catchy packaging over substance. And so one of the things that we've called for routinely is uh, incorporating faculty for these programs who come from business schools, from organizational psychology departments, human factors, psychologists. There are disciplines that study these things. And to this day, I interact with physicians where their first comment back when I start discussing some of these things is, wait a minute, people have actually studied this. People have sat down and figured out that there are better and worse ways to do this. It isn't just in a fluff and and guided by the seat of your pants sort of thing. And it's not also just something that you're born with or not, that some people are good leaders or they aren't. These are all skills you can develop in the same way that you can develop, you know, your, your practice or your clinical abilities. So it sounds like in order to get a good education within our own university systems, we need to have a better systematic approach, interprofessional in the sense of reaching out to professionals in the business school and the um, department of behavioral psychology, and then bringing their expertise into the medical field. What can individual medical professionals do to gain this education on their own? You know, once they're out of medical school, once they're in practice, should they listen to business-minded podcasts? Should they read some books? Should they go get an MBA? What can they do to gain expertise in these areas? And then also, what specific areas would you say are most vital? Is it organizational behavior? Is it supply chain? And within these topics, you know, I'm sure there's many different subcategories. Yeah, I think, you know, increasing exposure is a a great start. Just becoming familiar with these ideas, whether that's podcasts or something like reading something like the Harvard Business Review, you know, it just raises your awareness that these things are studied and introduces you to some of the terminology and ideas that are out there so that you can go and and dig deeper into them. What I challenge most of the the physicians that I speak with to do, though, is to move beyond that kind of surface level familiarity to really dive into the research literature in the same way that you would 
you know, if you were looking up a condition for a patient, you wouldn't go on WebMD and Google, like, my patient's knee hurts, right? And that's a little bit of what you get when you Google, you know, how do I lead a team well? But if you start exposing yourself to these ideas and you you get familiar with some of the terminology, there there's a whole stream of research, for instance, on this concept called leader-member exchange, which is a weird combination of words. But once you come across it a little bit, then you're a, a better Googler, right? Then you're looking at, you know, meta-analyses of leader-member exchange, and that can really help you get into some of the, the more evidence-based approaches. There is, again, a tendency to try to simplify these things or assume that they are just driven from somebody's gut and they can either figure it out or they can't. But there are a lot of really helpful frameworks and ideas out there that can be applied in, in pretty straightforward ways once we overcome that that hurdle of exposure. And I think kind of extending beyond that, there are an increasing number of programs that are being offered sort of in partnerships between university business schools and medical schools as continuing education to be able to, to dive into this. And I can give the example that at Hopkins, at, in particular at, at our school, at the Cary Business School, we have a, a six-day executive education program sort of spread out over a month or so that really dives into a whole range of evidence and research around these issues you know, team leadership, management, operations, sort of introductory financial statements, you know, really all the things you wish you learned in medical school now that you're out in practice. And, you know, we have that accredited for 35-ish hours of CME as well. And so there, there are these programs out there that can fit into what we would traditionally define as continuing medical education, but rather than digging deeper on the clinical side, they start exposing you to these ideas on the business or management side. That was one thing when I was researching this episode that I was kind of shocked by. And I don't mean this like negatively, I just had no clue that a lot of these papers that you are an author on are not published in some random journal I've never heard of. Like this is from, you have one in the Annals of Surgery, you have one over here in the Journal of General Internal Medicine, like those are serious journals and that's like kind of exciting to see that it is getting out there, you know, but obviously most people don't read those journals cover to cover, which is, you know, probably one of the reasons I had never really seen that kind of stuff. But this is not something that is obscure. This is like fairly mainstream ideas out there. Absolutely. And so, you know, I think we're, we're seeing increasing prevalence of these ideas in sort of the traditionally very clinical focused medical journals. But by the same token, there are extremely high quality academic journals, um, both sort of at this intersection that look in, in areas like health services research, for instance, that, that would sort of be a blend of both, but also just purely in the business world. Again, the challenge is, is a question of exposure, right? For instance, one of our, our field's top journals, you know, that publishes really high quality, rigorous research is called Administrative Science Quarterly, which, you know, as a, a former mentor of mine used to say, like, just really sounds like a great page turner, right? You want to dig in, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, but by the same token that, you know, uh, otolaryngology head and neck surgery doesn't sound like the most appealing read uh, to most of my MBA students. Administrative Science Quarterly may not sound like an appealing read, but they've actually published just in the last six months, two or three really in-depth studies in medical context that have a lot of really great insight 
an opportunity. So to the extent that individuals can become broader readers and, and knowledgeable and sort of keeping up with trends in these different areas, there's a lot of insight to be gained there. I like the idea of exposure. I worked in IT before I came to medical school. And so now I'm the go-to IT guy across my extended family. And they always ask me, how did you know how to fix the problem? And always the answer is I have had enough exposure to know what to Google to fix the problem, you know, and they can work Google too, but not without the exposure of learning the terms, learning the basic ideas. I like that. And uh, maybe we'll all have to go get a subscription to the Harvard Business Review after this. So the good news is you can read four articles a month for free on there. You know, I mean, these things are out there, you know, I say that just as a random plug that I uh, give for, for my MBA students as well is, you know, you can be keeping up with these things. A subscription's not that expensive. The articles are easy reads. Harvard Business Review is often sort of the general audience summary of research findings. So, so researchers will often publish their, their paper in an academic journal and then engage with the Harvard Business Review and their editorial team to create kind of a, a summary of it. But again, I think one thing that clinicians and physicians in particular are armed with is an ability to understand primary source research. And so, you know, as you're reading the Harvard Business Review, there'll often be a link, like in our research hyperlink, you know, um, through your university library access, you'll be able to, to get those research papers and you can read and process them in the same way that you would evaluate a study as you're trying to get up to speed on a particular clinical condition. And I think engaging at that level really helps set people apart and, and set them up for success. Because as you say, if you do the, the basic level Googling, you'll find wonderfully catchy resources about, are you a blue leader, a green leader, or a chartreuse leader? Um, right. But yeah. those aren't always necessarily the, the most evidence-backed uh, approaches to trying to understand these things what your astrology science says about your leadership style yeah it turns out we don't publish on that very much in the yeah. research literature uh you know it makes for a good buzzfeed quiz but yeah uh, not yeah. not quite worthy of administrative science quarterly let's say yeah well so moving on can we talk a little bit about um some of the key subjects you talk about in your papers so you have a few ideas floating around there um and you could kind of touch on whichever ones you feel like are relevant, but you talked about vicarious learning, mm-hmm. some team-based learning, and then you had that other recent paper about um, motivation learning from exceptional success of others. Um, yeah. Can you just kind of touch on a few of the things that you've written about? Sure. And so I should say, you know, my work is a is a certainly a, a small subset of the field of organizational behavior, which is itself a subset of kind of the discipline of business and and management. And so in the same way, you know, within medicine, you might specialize and then subspecialize, um, you know, the area of organizational behavior that I do the most research on is in this process of learning at work. And so how do individuals come to know what they need to know to be successful, particularly in today's really knowledge intensive work environments. And so one of the big things, things that I study in my research is what's the effect of other people on our learning in a whole variety of different ways. So the classic model, and perhaps still the dominant model in, in medical education, is that we are the empty vessel and it's just about filling up our own internal capacity. 
And that's a relationship between us, a slide deck and a textbook. And it's just this very individual focused knowledge building kind of approach. But what I look at in my work is what are the effects of our ability to learn with and from other people? And so learning from others is this idea of vicarious learning. So how do we learn from other people's mistakes, which happens all the time in, in medical practice, not mistakes, although you know, those might happen all the time, but we don't want to talk about that. But learning from others happens all the time. If you think about see one, do one, teach one, two thirds of that are about other people, right? Both learning from watching somebody else and teaching it to someone else. And so we recognize anecdotally, at least, that there's a ton of value in interacting with others and, and learning from their positive and negative experiences. And so I've studied this concept of vicarious learning uh, as a way that, that individuals sort of enact that, that learning from other people. So how do they engage in interactions? What are the patterns of those interactions in teams that really help us harness the lessons of others' experiences? Beyond just the knowledge benefit, though, I've studied some of the sort of well-being effects of engaging in learning, and particularly among medical trainees. So uh, in a study of internal medicine residents, we found that being part of a team that, that you reported engaged in a lot of learning behavior was associated with lower levels of burnout, particularly for individuals who themselves did not have a really strong learning orientation. So that engaging in, in learning is a way of, you know, sort of replenishing or, or fighting against burnout. And with some colleagues from the University of Michigan and Tsinghua University, we sort of summarized some of our collective work that's looked at how learning works as a, a tool to buffer against stress. You know, it not only gives us these direct resources of, oh, now I know how to fix this problem that's been stressing me out or, or causing me tension and, and potentially burnout, but also just the act of learning something new is restorative and enjoyable for many of us. And so that can be a buffer against stress. And so, you know, one of the, the main challenges of, of trying to, to be part of these learning communities or learning from other people is getting them and understanding how getting them to share stories of their experiences matters. Right, so it's really helpful to learn from other people's failures, but it's hard to get people to talk about their failures necessarily. When I walk up and I say, hey, Chandler, Johnny, you know, tell me about the biggest screw up you had this week so I can learn from it. I start to not be very popular at parties. Right? I'm, nobody wants <laughs> to engage in that kind of um, storytelling necessarily. Now, we know it can be really valuable and there, there are movements to, to make that more of an accepted norm broadly within the world of organizations. In the healthcare space, we, we've seen it for a long time in morbidity and mortality conferences and root cause analyses and things like that. It's still not the most fun experience, but it's at least happening. But some colleagues and I got together, including one of our uh, colleagues is an emergency department physician. And, you know, we started asking the question, like, okay, well, why do we learn more potentially from other people's failures than from their successes. We started thinking about things like, well, you know, the failure is unexpected. It means that what we used to know wasn't sufficient anymore. And it's surprising to us, right? Things didn't go as we expected them to. And just hearing somebody else's story of like, yep, it, it went pretty much how we expected it to go is not really motivating for us to, to try to learn much from that. But hearing somebody say, you know, oh, this, this went completely not how I expected it. Well, now we're interested. We're motivated to learn from that experience. 
But what we wanted to look at is, you know, there can be surprising things that don't go the way you think they do, but in a positive direction. And these are what we call these exceptional or unexpected successes. And we wanted to see, is there value in learning, you know, are people motivated rather to learn from other people's exceptional successes? And so we use an online study, but also a a study in the context of emergency departments, gathering stories of kind of failures, regular successes and exceptional successes from these ED clinicians, and then using those in this six-week longitudinal study to expose others to these stories of either failure, success, or exceptional success, and gauge their motivation to learn. And what we found was, you know, there was this benefit of exceptional success stories, kind of like what we see with the failure stories. And what we like about that that's, that's practical is it's a little bit easier to get people to talk about their exceptional successes, right? That, that feels less burdensome than having to get up and share a story of your failure. And if they have a similar kind of benefit in terms of motivating others learning, then that's low-hanging fruit for us to, to be able to start building out how we learn from other people. And we see this happening in some organizations, right? There's good catch logs that are sent around. There's emails that get sent after a particularly kind of notable win in the department. But it's an opportunity for us to, to continue building the, the pathways by which we learn from other people. Yeah, this is kind of conjecture, but from an evolutionary standpoint, whenever you think about humans as sort of social animals and what do we have that other species don't have, it's our ability to communicate and share through stories, complex ideas that will make my life better. If you tell me a story about something that was crazy, you know, where you found some food, how you hunted an animal, whatever, you know, evolutionarily, that's like what our species does. That's the whole reason from an evolutionary standpoint, we even have the ability to really talk and things like that. So it makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a huge, you know, part of our life. We live, you know, there, there's a, a longstanding body of research that we sort of live and experience the world through story right? mm-hmm. as, as these forms of stories and trying to harness that, I think is something that, that we don't do necessarily often enough in medical settings. I've done some research with air medical transport teams. And so those are the, the folks who go out in a helicopter often to, to pick up a patient, often typically from a smaller community hospital to bring them back to like a large university center or something. But what's interesting about those teams is that you can't observe, you can't sort of learn by see one, do one, teach one for a, a variety of reasons. One being there's not enough room in the back of the helicopter. You can only really have two people back there, maybe three. So it's not like the whole team could kind of come rotate through and see what somebody's doing in the way that students or residents or, you know, even colleagues could come in and see how an attending is, is approaching a particular task. The do one is challenging because they never see 10,000 of exactly the same thing in the way that a highly specialized medical professional might in another setting. They're catching all the weird stuff that needs to get flown into the university hospital. And teaching one is challenging, again, because it's just two of you. So you have one more experienced person, one more junior person, but you're doing this really in pairs at a time. And what I observed in my research was that those flight team members used a ton of storytelling when they were back at the base as a way of sort of recreating these experiences that they couldn't get because of all these barriers. So they would tell the story of having to extricate somebody from 
a vehicle and they would end up using a lot of different props or ideas. So they'd go get a sim mannequin, sit them up in a chair, you know, and kind of build with books a little quote unquote car around him and say, you know, okay, he was pinned this way. How would you have intubated? You know, and they'll just get out a blade and really start trying and messing around with it. Right. And they, they share these stories, you know, in that case, the, the story was that somebody took off the front windshield and immobilized the patient while the other came and intubated through the sunroof. Right. And it's just things you would never learn. Right. It's that's not covered in a textbook anywhere. You can't all go and watch it. So what do you do? You tell the story. Oh, this was so crazy. We did this, this, and this. You kind of mock it up in the office and you let people experience it and try it. And now everybody walks away with that super rare, unusual nugget of information that they probably won't ever need in their career. But if they do, they need it right now with no opportunity to call back and say, hey, Johnny Chandler, what what was it that you guys did? Uh, never mind. Sorry. Patient has expired. Right? You know, that, that kind of setting forces us to use these stories in a way that we might not in in a traditional hospital setting, but I think has lessons for us of how we try to to bring more of that storytelling into our our formal learning processes in the hospital. Earlier, you were talking about how learning can help us fight burnout. And especially in this setting where it's engaging, it's storytelling, I can see that, right? What about for medical students? One of the things I see across the interwebs is medical students talking about how they're burned out of learning. They're burned out Mm -hmm. of grinding in the textbooks, learning about the Krebs cycle once again. Is learning still the solution for them? How do they fight burnout in the context of continual learning? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what what you're getting at a little bit are are different modalities of of learning and and we know and we've seen a lot of medical schools switching towards more experiential learning uh, based curriculums, getting people onto the words earlier. And to the point you raised earlier, Chandler, of how do we teach and assess these things in business schools? We use a whole variety of, of cases of experiential exercises because these are the kinds of things that you learn by doing rather than just by reading about in a textbook. And so I think when we think about the the sort of buffering effects of learning, learning from a textbook can be a, a buffer to some of this. If you know what to do, you're less stressed out about it, right? It's, it's less stressful for individuals who have the technical knowledge of how to run a code and how to deal with these things than it is for me when I walk in and observe these teams, right? I'm stressed out the whole time because I have no idea what's going on and it's all scary and messy. And I watch people who can walk in and be very calm in that environment. That comes from knowledge and experience. So that direct benefit, I think, is still there. But when we expand out to think about more experiential approaches to learning, learning from and with other people in simulations, in these storytelling interactions, that can build a lot of those psychological sort of characteristics or or, or psychological resources, rather, that help us buffer against stress or against burnout. So, so take the storytelling example. There's knowledge that comes from the story. There's also just reassurance when you hear a story of somebody else, especially in a difficult uh, setting of like, okay, I'm not the only one who, who struggles with this job sometime or who doesn't get it right all the time. Think about what that sort of camaraderie and, and identification and, and relational resource does for us the next time we're in a stressful environment right? You know, we, we fuel the burnout sometimes when we think that we're the only deficient one. 
And so hearing stories of others' difficult experiences, yeah, we learn the, the little nuggets and pearls that come from clinically what they did. But we also just get this nice boost of like, okay, I'm not the only one. We're all in this together. We're all struggling to, to figure these kinds of things out. So expanding to that more social dimension of learning, I think, can even further help us build those resources that combat stress and burnout. That may be a part of that um, learning from the exceptional success of others is whenever you see exceptional people and you spend time with them, they become more human and you realize that they are they had to go through the same learning process that you had to go through. You know, that's been my experience, at least being around people like that. It can be like, oh, man, I'm never going to get to the level of that attending or whatever. And then you start spending time with them. You're like, they're a human being. They had to learn this stuff just like I'm having to do right now. Yeah. And fortunately, we're seeing a shift towards more of that kind of expression of humanity versus perhaps the the more rigid hierarchy and inaccessibility sometimes of particularly senior physicians to expressing some of that humility and that humanity. You were talking earlier about how there's these rules in the business world that teach these principles that physicians need to know. And just now you're talking about how we can make learning more engaging and more fulfilling by having more clinical experiences early or teaching through case scenarios. And in my mind, one of the things I struggle with most is digging into a very meaty research article. It's something I don't love to do. So how do you marry those two? You know, the, the, preventing of burnout through engaging education, but also the deep intellectual focus that you need to really come to good, true conclusions. Yeah. So for me, they, they go hand in hand and when they're done well, they can really fuel each other. So when is the time that you're paying the most attention to the research article is when you've got a patient on the other side of the door who you know is is suffering from this or you know you're going into a case, right? When do you get the least out of it? When you're reading it for a shelf exam or it's been a forced requirement to read through this article. And I think the same logic applies for these sort of organizational challenges. I think one of the reasons that people are not excited when they have their two hours of management training, like you you mentioned before, is they, they haven't gotten it yet. They haven't seen it yet, right? If you're getting that in year one and two of medical school, when you've just been in the classroom, this is just more classroom, right? There's more terms to learn. And by the way, our research articles are like 30 pages long. They're not, they're even less fun than a, a six page <laughs> JAMA, right? So yeah. if you put it in at that point, yeah, nobody's interested, right? You know, when, when individuals come to us is, you know, for these executive programs, for instance, is often when they've been in practice for five years or so, and they're starting to move into more of a semi-formal or formal leadership role. And they realize like, oh, okay, I'm seeing all of the, the error reports or the, the dashboard of, of challenges and problems. The last seven M&Ms I went to were all about communication. Turns out none of them were about the Krebs cycle. Now I'm realizing like, okay, this is important. I need to, I need to dive into this a little bit. So I think bringing that experiential learning approach earlier, getting people out onto the floor earlier to actually see these things, to see that the root of good care is as much managerial and, and sort of organizational as it is clinical and that 
you know, you can have all the clinical knowledge in the world. If you can't coordinate the team to actually execute that, that you're going to be hamstrung. Once you see it, then the value of reading those articles, I think, is increased because you've got a scenario in your mind. You've got a situation and a problem that you're trying to solve um, that isn't an academic exercise at that point. It's how do I bring this, this team of professionals together or how do I optimize the flow of my ED so that people aren't sitting for, for nine hours? How do I make sure that the right medication is getting to the right patient at the right time? Those are real problems, and there are good, helpful solutions embedded in these articles. But if you're just reading them because Chris said you had to, there, there's often a lot less motivation to do that. Yeah, that's certainly a component of it. The management training that happens in the first two years, it's like the same day you get a PowerPoint with a thousand drug names you have to memorize, and then following right behind that is secrets to management communication or whatever. You're going to ignore the management communication PowerPoint and try to memorize those drugs. And, and we've uh, been taught that, you know, yeah. uh, you see the name of the drugs and you know you don't know that. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we've all been led to believe that we can be good leaders and that it is intuitive and that it's just based on your gut and you need to get experience. And you've been part of a team, so you know what good team leadership is. Right? But again, having kidneys does not a nephrologist make. The, the same is true there, but we don't accept that quite as immediately, right? You know, we, we're ready and willing to say, I know nothing about kidneys. We have a harder time saying, I know nothing about communication, despite it really being kind of a similar sort of level of knowledge that we walk in with. And so, yeah, when you've got a limited number of hours in the day, you know, your, your ability to, to get a high enough score to get into the residency program you want depends entirely on memorizing the drug names and zero, literally zero on good communication among interprofessional in interprofessional settings, yeah, you prioritize the thing that's going to be tested. What I think we have to really reconsider as a profession is, is memorizing drug names the criteria on which we want to select people? Because it's the one we're doing right now, right? If, if we're selecting on grades, we're selecting on the ability to take tests well and memorize large amounts of information that are easily available and that Epic now tells you what what you should be doing half the time anyway. That's something we really have to question. I was watching my my wife, who I, I mentioned earlier is a ear, nose, and throat surgeon, studying for her board exams. She's got to memorize ideal facial structure angles for rhinoplasty. Right? We, we live in a world with 3D scanners and computer simulations and models that could figure all of that out on any given patient and tell her exactly what she needs to be doing. She's got to memorize drug interactions. Again, Epic will tell you, you know, the interaction between two different drugs. I think we, we may need a broader reckoning where we step back and ask ourselves, you know, are we training physicians for the way the modern world works or for the way it might've worked 15 years ago? Yeah, that's really the complicated problem right there is what are you selecting for for the next generation of physicians? And it's not at all self-evident what is important. And there are just thousands and thousands of different things that you could select for potentially for the next generation of physicians. And balancing all that is, you know, I'm glad it's not my job to figure out how to do that because that doesn't look very fun. And it gets baked in as a culture. And that's one of the things that we have to really question. So Who's, who becomes the new chair of cardiology? Our best cardiologist or our faculty who brings in the most research dollars, right? 
number one, neither of those are necessarily predictors of who will be a good manager because a department chair is a manager. They're now going to be in budget meetings for half of their life. Maybe bringing in research dollars, okay, you've had to manage a grant budget. You know, Maybe that gives you some experience. Being the best cardiologist isn't necessarily a predictor. And we also lose what, what Peter Pronovost and I have written about is this double loss because we lose twice. One, we're putting in somebody who isn't necessarily prepared for that job. Two, we took somebody who we just said is one of our best researchers or cardiologists and gave them a 70% administrative appointment. Right? So we lose as a department. Right? Now, I'm not saying you go and you pick the worst cardiologist or the lowest research dollar earner, but it's a silly system when we actually step back and look at it. But you know, across the board in academic centers, we choose the, the big name researchers and famous clinicians to be our, our administrators and our leaders. And that is so emblematic of, of this culture of you know, we, we promote and we reward and we select based on these very limited set of criteria that may not match onto the criteria that we want for, for effective outcomes. Yeah, that's definitely the take-home point is just be aware and think about what you're selecting for. I mean, the same, the same issue happens in science all the time too, where people will design these experiments and it's just like, why are you using that as a proxy for what you're trying to measure and something like that? And it's just not that people are evil or doing it on purpose. A lot of times they're just not even thinking about it. They're just doing the same thing that was done before, you know, a lot of times. So... Absolutely. And when you when you talk about a profession like medicine that has such a rich history, and particularly this sort of master and apprentice kind of history that it that it has, it takes a while to to change some of these things. Right? That I mean, you you just look at how long some of the the terminology or ideas or things stay. And I can't be a faculty member at Hopkins without giving some historical view of, of the field of medicine from Hopkins, right? But we have our, our big dome, right? And patient rooms were all around the dome. And so rounding was came comes from going around that circle. And resident came from the fact that those junior physicians had to live in the hospital, right? They resided here. They had to be single, unmarried men, and they, they lived in the hospital, right? How, how much of that assumption would we still find in the way we, we think about and treat residents today that probably makes a lot less sense than it did a couple hundred years ago when that term was, was born from that practice, right? It takes a long time to change the culture of medicine. And my hope is that by continuing to have these conversations and to continue to raise, as you both have said, the awareness and exposure of these ideas, we can start that that culture change. And if there's any silver lining to be had from the pandemic, I think that's really accelerating these issues. I think we're realizing now that our ability to deliver care in the in the time of COVID is far more influenced by our supply chains, by our operational capacity, by our organizational capacity by our ability to coordinate, by our financial reserves, then we might have previously acknowledged or noticed, right? That this is really providing a huge stress test to the system to say, if you haven't been paying attention to finances and operations up till now, especially if you're in a smaller practice setting, you know, where as a physician, you you have more of that 
responsibility or role, uh, you're, you're waking up to, to the need to really attend to those things because those are going to be the driver of what organizations survive the pandemic and which ones don't. And so, you know, I think that awareness is only becoming more accelerated now, which you know, I, I hope is, is a, a positive takeaway of the pandemic if and when it, it comes to an end. Well, Dr. Myers, we appreciate your time. Is there any last words that you'd like to leave with the medical student community on management and organizational behavior in medicine? I think the, the biggest opportunity is remembering that you know, there are people like me who do this kind of research probably within a quarter mile of your current location. In the sense that, you know, every university big enough to have a medical school is probably big enough to have a business school as well. And that these aren't problems you need to necessarily figure out and solve on your own. The world of medicine is certainly a a challenging one, but not perfectly unique, right? Not immune or, or somehow totally different to other types of organizations. So, reaching out to faculty, to other students, even at, at the business school, wherever you are, to try to bring together some of these ideas. I think they're naturally starting to merge, right? As healthcare becomes a more and more central part of the economy, as more and more people, I think healthcare uh, as of last year or the year before was the largest employer in the economy. So, you know, it is of central interest to the world of business in as much as management and business is becoming of more central interest to the world of medicine. And so I think you'll find a lot of, a lot more like-minded spirits than, than you might have expected. And so look around, reach out, create those opportunities. And again, increase your own exposure to these ideas as much as you can. Well, thanks so much. Where can people go to learn more about your work and what you do? So, you know, I'm, I'm happy to share a, a link to my personal website and, and Twitter and things like that. If, if you guys want to uh, drop them yeah, in that there, would be great. at Chris G Myers on Twitter. Um, I can't promise there's anything helpful on there, but uh, <laughs> always happy to, to engage in discussion. Yeah. Sweet. Um, <clears throat> did you see, um, I don't know if you sent this to Johnny, but the little paragraph we typed out for your intro, um, mm-hmm in the show notes or whatever, if there's anything you want us to add in there or anything to change, just email it to Johnny. Cause we basically sure. just read that off right before the episode. So. Sure. Yeah. I can send you, um, I think, let me pull this up. And same thing. I don't know if you've got any books in the works or anything like that, but if there's anything else you want us to put in the show notes or anything, just send it and we'll throw it in there. Sure. I'm actually working today on, on some page proofs for an article, um, for the Journal of Patient Safety and Risk Management that's that's titled, actually, COVID-19 has revealed why all physicians need to learn about oh. the business of healthcare. I so, saw that and I was I thought the paper was already published and I was like, I got to read this paper. I want to know, what is it? Yeah. Can you tell us what it is really fast? Uh, we, so we won't it's put this in the many of the same ideas we just discussed. Um, okay. So as soon as those page proofs are ready, I'll, I'll send it over to you because I think they're trying to put it live in the next uh, week or two. So, okay. um, so that should be, should be ready to go soon. Yeah. Great title for that article. Just great. So, <laughs> so catchy. Well, we'll, we'll see if it, if it garners enough attention to actually change the conversation. Yeah, hopefully. 
Well, Dr. Myers, thank you so much. Yeah. Absolutely.